Hello, my name's Alex Rudkeen. I'm a barrister at Thurton and Essex Chamber specialising in mental capacity law. And what I want to do with you over the next 20 minutes or so is walk you through how to think about best interests for purposes of the Mental Capacity Act. To do so, I'm going to share some slides, so I'll get them up and running now, and then we can take it from there. So, can I start with this? Is it even your decision? Uh, you're watching this because you're wanting to think about best interest decision making. Could I please just make sure that you, as it were, don't watch this without having watched the webinar or the shedinar about mental capacity? Because this is a piece of legislation, the Mental Capacity Act, which is designed to be a piece of legislation which doesn't allow you to get to the point of thinking about best interests without having taken all practicable steps to support the person to make their own decision. You're not allowed to get to this Shadonar as a matter of law without having uh, taken all those steps and been able to identify why actually this person can't make the decision in question. So that's a large, well, it's gold, but large red flag, okay? So we now move on, assuming that you've done all those things. And I'm making an assumption, which is always dangerous, but I'll just do it for these purposes. We come then to think about best interests for purposes of the Mental Capacity Act. And we had three principles in relation to capacity. You will have reminded yourself because you saw, because you saw the Shedonar. We've got two principles about best interests. In a funny sort of way, these principles are less, well, the first one looks less interesting, less relevant, but it is important to, just to make one point here. So section 1.5, a person, an act done or a decision made under this act for or on behalf of a person acts capacity must be done or made in their best interests. Well, kind of, so what? Because that doesn't flesh out what best interest means. We'll come on to, the act does give us some, some clues there. But I would just remind you, this is making clear, we are thinking about situations which are governed by the Mental Capacity Act. Please remember, not every decision made in relation to somebody with impaired decision-making capacity is a decision made under the Mental Capacity Act. So for instance, a decision about how to meet someone's or the assessment of someone's needs under the Care Act 2014 in England or the Social Services and Wellbeing Way, uh, uh, and Wales Act 2014 in Wales, and then how to meet those needs, those are public law decisions. They aren't necessarily governed by the Mental Capacity Act at all. I'll come back to that point, but it's important. Section 1.6 is extremely important. And it's, well, you've had enough time to read it now, so I'm going to frame it in two different ways for you. The first is the stop and think principle. Stop. I mean, literally just stop. What exactly are you trying to do? Because unless you ask yourself that question, you don't know whether there's a way you can achieve it in a way which is less draconian, less restrictive of the person's rights and freedoms. To give an example, you've got somebody who is terminally ill. They don't have many weeks left to live. At that point, it is not interesting to think so much about how can we take steps to secure this person lives as long as possible? It's unlikely that's what's really important. What's much more important is how can we think about how to make arrangements which enable this person to die surrounded by the people they would like to be surrounded with and in the place where they would wish to be? 
you can't know what you're trying to do until you know what you're trying to achieve. The other way, I said I get two different ways of thinking about it. The first is stop and think. The second is Spider-Man. Spider-Man, everybody knows, always says, with great power comes great responsibility. I can't emphasize how important it is to internalize the fact that making a decision on a best interest basis is to take a huge amount of power. It's important, you need to, if the person doesn't have capacity to make the decision. It's hugely important though, that you exercise that power responsibly. So I said the Mental Capacity Act did give us some more clues for thinking about how to think about best interests. It does in section four, give us what everybody always calls a checklist. The factors which have to be taken into account. These can really be divided into two kind of things. One is ways in which to think. So for instance, trying as best as possible not to allow uh, unconscious bias or unconscious discrimination to creep in about, for instance, well, I'm uncomfortable about all people with learning disabilities undertaking that kind of activity. Just check, see why you might be thinking the way you're thinking. Is, there, is that reflecting something more about how you're looking at the world? So some of it's about thinking and some of it's about doing. The doing is trying to enable participation on behalf of the person. Just because they don't have capacity to make their decisions, as Mr. Justice Peter Jackson once said, capacity is not a cliff edge. On the other side of incapacity, the person's wishes and feelings still value and matter. And we need to find ways of making sure they can participate. And that participation might let you rethink might rethink, actually, you know what, I think this person really does have capacity. And then getting consultation with other people to try and get into account, in particular, what they think this person would want. That's what the purpose of consultation is, the primary consultation. It's not so much what do the family want in, in that sort of situation, family or friends, is what do they think this person would want. Critically, section four never gives the answer. It's not an algorithm. It are, makes us hopefully ask the right questions. And that does mean it is perfectly possible for two people conscientiously to ask these questions and come to different conclusions and both of them be equally reasonable. At that point, if you can't achieve a genuine consensus, you need to go and find a grown up. And then a grown up might be the court of protection. But please, it's really important to understand it is perfectly possible for two different people to reach similar conclusions. So different conclusions and both be reasonable. One tip here actually, also before you go and find a grown up is to think of this a bit like marriage counseling. It's not personal, it's the issue is between them. Sit down, ask yourselves the questions together and see why you've reached different conclusions. Quite often it's about attitudes to risk. Some people are more just naturally risk averse than others and they, are projecting that onto how to think things through. We've done a guide in Chambers to thinking about best interests. It's a guide which accompanies our capacity guide, and you can always find the most recent iteration at that link there. But I just want to spend a little bit of time drawing out a, a few important points thinking about best interests as a process. Because you need to be clear about who the role is, who is occupying the different roles. If it's the person themselves, or sorry, it could well be the person themselves it is a, if it is a medical treatment decision. If they may have made an advanced decision to refuse treatment, 
and it's valid and it's applicable, it's their decision. No one can try and make a best interest decision on their behalf. That was really emphasized in that Rushton case. So that's that person themselves projecting themselves forward and saying no. If they haven't done that, they might have appointed an attorney. Please check that the attorney's powers are registered, the, attorney, the power of attorney is registered with the Office of Public Guardian. Please check that the attorney is, as it were, operating within the scope of their authority. A property and affairs uh, attorney isn't going to be making decisions about medical treatment, say. They're likely still to be someone who needs to be consulted as someone interested in the person's welfare, but they don't get to be the decision maker. If they are acting within the scope of their authority, it's as if you're talking to the person. If they say something you don't agree with as the conclusion, please see if you can reach a consensus. But ultimately, if you think that the person, the attorney is acting in a way which isn't in the person's best interests, the only way you can get that resolved is by the court of protection. But please don't all race off to the court of protection the whole time, discuss first. But recognize that attorney is standing there as if it was that person themselves, with the caveat that they have to be acting in the best interest of the person. And you therefore need to be exercising your brain, engaging your brain to think, what do I think is in the best interest of this person? So you can tease out how the attorney is acting. There might be a deputy appointed by the court of protection. You'll come across lots of deputies in the property and affairs field. You will come across very few deputies in the health and welfare field. You will never come across the next of kin as a decision maker. There is no such thing as the next of kin under the Mental Capacity Act. They are very likely, if they're in a hospital situation, to be, well, they'll be the point of contact for the hospital is really how it's best thought about. They are very likely to be the, somebody who really needs to be consulted to try and think about what to do but they do not make the decision. Never, ever, ever allow yourself to see a consent form signed by somebody, somebody's next of kin, where the person themselves doesn't have capacity to make the decision. If we don't have the person themselves by an ADRT, there isn't an attorney or deputy, we are into a zone where section five mental capacity act applies a collaborative process to try to think through best interests. This carries with it an important accountability point, thinking actually who's responsible for making sure there's a proper process happening, who's responsible for actually reaching a conclusion about what are we going to do. Can I make one point clear here? The Mental Capacity Act does not talk about best interests meetings. Meetings can sometimes be very useful as a way to gather information and decide what to do. They can sometimes also be extremely unhelpful. If there are far too many, say, professionals ganging up on one family member, unlikely the family member is going to be able to give a very helpful input into what they think the person would have wanted. Can I also say this goes the other way around? Lots of very, very um, uh, family members, very strong feelings, one professional, equally unlikely to be helpful. What's the best way of getting out the information that everybody needs in order to reach this conclusion? I said earlier, not every decision relating to somebody with impaired decision-making capacity is made under the Mental Capacity Act. And it's really important to emphasize that best interest decision-making is choice between the options which are actually available. That's what the Supreme Court emphasized in that case, N and ACCG. And in many cases, the options which are actually available are options which are generated by public bodies 
discharging their public law obligations, making the decision about how to allocate scarce resources and making a conclusion decision, say, for instance, that it is someone's needs can lawfully and properly be met in a care home, which is in fact cheaper, say, than caring for them at home. If their needs could lawfully and properly be met in both places, there is nothing improper with the public authority saying we are funding the care home, at which point care in the person's own home isn't on the table. There is no best interest choice to be made there. It's important to be clear here. It's equally important also, for instance, that um, I can't demand a treatment which doctors consider to be clinically appropriate. And if I don't have capacity, no one can try and make that demand on my behalf. So medical professionals need to be clear whether they're engaging with family members in particular in a conversation which is saying, we simply don't think this treatment is appropriate and this is why, or we don't think this is in X's best interest. Those are two different things leading to two particularly different ways of thinking. And if we're not clear and possible routes of challenge, and if we're not clear, inadvertent confusion and considerable heartache for everybody can be caused. Best interest as a process needs to be calibrated to the gravity and the urgency of the situation. If it's very urgent, you may not have to, much time in which to be able to gather for in particular, in particular the information you need to know what the person might have wanted. You might have to do something quickly, but please come back and reconsider. Best interest decisions are ones which can be mobile, can be dynamic. It's really disturbing when you see something which is um, uh, locked in stone because a decision was taken at point A and it just rolls forward in the records. If the situation changes, and in particular, if you can get more information, please revisit. So how do we think about best interests? Well, the Supreme Court told us in the first cases, first case that came before it about the mental capacity act, the point of the exercise, think about matters from the patient's point of view, or can I be clear, actually the person's point of view, patient's point of view in, in Aintree and James, because Mr. James was a hospital patient. Otherwise, P, which is the person before the court of protection subject to proceedings, P means person. If you start hearing um, anyone referring to P as patient outside the hospital setting, please just double check whether they're not applying a very much older mindset that all people with cognitive impairments are in some, some, high, some way mental patients. P means person. The courts have talked subsequently and repeatedly about the, the idea is put yourself in the shoes of P. It's not quite as simple as what the person would have done. You don't just go, the person would have done this, therefore we do that. But if you know, if you're sufficiently clear, and that's important, you don't just make this stuff up. But if having done the exercise of trying to gather what you can find out about the person's wishes, feelings, beliefs and values, makes it clear what they would have done, if they could give the, as it were, capacitors answer to the question, that carries a great deal of weight, absent compelling reasons to the contrary. I mean, we can frame it in lots of legal language and those stories there, I'm not going to tell you right now, but they're stories which are really worth reading, case stories worth reading, which the courts look about this, look at this in legal language. We could frame this in legal language, but actually this is about basic decent respect. If you know what the person would have done, why aren't you doing it? I mean, it's as simple as that. You might have a proper reason not to do it, but please at least ask, why are we not doing this? And I did want to emphasize that a lot of the time we're worried about risk. 
And B and D is just a really example, good example in the medical treatment context about risk, where this was a man who has uh, it was an unusual case, but really brings it home. He was a soldier who had sustained a very serious brain injury uh, at the hands of a fellow soldier in a bar fight. He's being looked after in a publicly funded rehabilitation centre. His mother does a lot of research and discovers that there's a stem cell uh, clinic in Belgrade, which offers stem cell therapy to re reverse the impact of brain injury. It's a, uh, put a minimum in experimental technique. And this is a good example of available options. In most circumstances, because the medics involved in his case said, uh, this is not a good idea for him to go, it would have been essentially game over. There would have been no way in which to say that they were acting irrationally in not offering, uh, for instance, the air ambulance to take him, not arranging for all of this. It would be impossible to challenge that. Because this man had money, because the Criminal Injuries Compensation Authority had compensated him for his brain injury, the actual question was, is it in his best interest to spend the money on going to the stem cell therapy uh, clinic to pay for this pri uh, therapy privately? Which is a very different question. And the judge spoke to him and the man, he didn't have capacity to make decisions about how to spend his money, essentially said to him, all I want is a chance to be normal. And the judge says, Mr. Justice Baker says, look, I'm fairly unconvinced this is going to work. I don't think it's going to kill him, but all life is an experiment. What good is it in making someone safer if it merely makes them, and I'll let you fill that quotation in just to see if you remember it, if it merely makes them miserable. That was quoting from Mr. Justice Mumby, but it's a really helpful phrase. And then just to give a last example of a really standard-ish sort of case, a challenge to a so-called deprivation of liberty safeguards authorization. If you want to know, know more about those, see the video about deprivation liberty. And the choices were basically adequate care at home where the person really wanted to be versus rehabilitation support in a placement. And the judge in that case, on the facts of that scenario says, I can't really justify the relatively low chance of rehabilitation in this placement where she's really unhappy um, versus going home. I think there's too much risk aversion going on here. So that's just a, it's a good example. It's very frank in all cases of fact specific, but this is an example of how to think through risk. So some resources, the top link there is the uh, Chambers uh, Mental Capacity Resource page we do, we, we maintain, which has got guidance notes on, for instance, how to think about capacity, best interests, all the cases I've spoken about, and also the mental capacity report that we do each month in Chambers for free. You can find it there and sign up for uh, future editions. And there are some other relevant websites. Um, thank you very much indeed for watching.